The first thing I'm going to do is read James to you again. And I don't want to have this conversation yet. I wanted this to be a year where I just explored the New King James Version in my personal devotions and kind of tried to understand why there are some in the LCMS that have said for a long time we never should have gone to the English Standard Version. Uh, instead, we should have gone to the New King James when we left the NIV behind. If you're not privy to that conversation, that's, that's okay. But what it means is that someone has decided for you what translation you're going to trust to be the most reliable. And since I went to seminary, I have used the ESV without fear because I know it does accurately reflect the scriptures. If you're looking for a good representation of the Greek, it's a good, good work. But if you're trying to read it to understand what it means on a daily basis, or frankly, to preach from it, it just isn't even in the same league as the New King James Version. And I just, I've only been using the New King James for like two months, but I'm using it in study every week beside the ESV and the Greek. And this week, I can't take it. I got to read you the text in in the New King James. And and let it be a test here. Um, If you listened before, just listened, it didn't read along, especially I'm talking to you. And I'm going to guess you drifted sometime during the James reading. And I would say it's actually easy to do. It's, it's clunky. It's not put together to listen to. And I got to go through at least a minute and a half of it. And that's what's different here. It's not that it's more Englishly right. It's just that it sounds like the way we talk. So for that, let me give you uh, this letter from James. And then we're going to dive into his story because it's just... Amazing who this man was. James begins his letter, chapter 1, verse 1. James, or in the Greek, Jacob, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James will go on here to riff on that term, temptation, which he's dealt with a little bit already in the idea of trial earlier in the letter. And that trial is a specific one that he's writing about. And it's his history that's going to get us to kind of see that. 
Why is he writing when he's writing? But, uh, you know, I can't point you to a specific text because we're going to dance over a bunch of them now to try to ask about who this guy is. Where did he come from? And how on earth did he end up not only running the entire Christian movement at its epicenter, but then also getting into the scriptures when he's not an apostle? It's quite odd, especially if you don't believe he's actually Jesus' brother, which is half the argument. And I'll just use some of our friends here uh, in in Rockford as an example, and we'll let it be a friendly disagreement. I am so proud that the Roman Catholic Church is officially pro-life. They are way louder than we are, and it's an embarrassment to us Lutherans that we even think we're pro-life when you look at what they do with their week and their time. That being said, Holy Family, as represented in their imagery, and of course the name of the local church, it's not much of a holy family. You have some guy who didn't really marry her, kind of did, never consummated the marriage, spent a life of celibacy, maybe had kids from a former marriage, but more likely has adopted some cousins into the family. That's James, apparently. And then the woman is a mother who's never, ever really been a mother the normal way. She does have a son and then some cousins she's raising, except she's so perfect, right? So it just veers off right away. The amazing thing is then you really don't have a holy family. Marriage isn't even there, let alone brothers and sisters. It's quite something, isn't it? So try this one on instead. Try that Joseph's a good man. He's going to get married to a good girl. Jewish society, you know how that part goes. Shows up, she's pregnant. He decides not to put her away. He's told by an angel, this kid's special. Okay, cool. He's told, name him Jesus. He'll save the world. Okay, cool. He does all this. They have to flee because that kid's going to be killed. And we know all this is taking place right around, by the way, 3 to 2 B.C. or B.C.E., the common era, which is when Christ was born. <laughs> it's, it's around zero we normally count it from, but those numbers guessed at or figured out in the Middle Ages are off probably by when he was actually born. So Christmas in Bethlehem, 3 to 2 B.C., They flee shortly thereafter. They're back up in Nazareth around 1 AD. Now, are they having more kids now or not is the question. Or did, again, all these other boys and girls come from a previous marriage and Joseph was just an old man? I mean, I've believed that before. I can say when it comes to this argument, which really is about whether or not Mary is a perpetual virgin, whether or not Joseph ever married her or not, like consummated it, that argument is one I've been on both sides of in the past. And I'll be quite frank, whoever made the argument most recently is usually who I agree with. So who am I going to argue on behalf of? Well, the one I heard most recently as I read a book about it this week. Uh, But you're not wrong to want to think that Joseph was too pious to ever come home and do to the tabernacle of God, Mary, uh, what carnal flesh would do. Like there's something pious in that thought. But again, doesn't it kind of take marriage and say that marriage is nothing more than carnal flesh? And that's the error. Marriage is so much more than that. So I'm going to say that sometime after they get back to Nazareth or shortly in between, this kid Jacob is born. Jacob in the Greek, James somehow through how it gets into English. I don't know that history. But what's most important to know about Jacob right away is that younger brother to Jesus, born of Mary and Joseph, I'm contending, 
is named for grandpa. Joseph's dad, Jacob. So now here's an interesting thing. We got the real son and the adopted son. Yeah, see that? And when the next kid gets named Joseph after dad, oh, look at that. And now Simeon's kind of a weird name for the third kid, but the fourth kid, Jude, who writes the book of Jude, by the way, um, Jude is Judah you know, for their tribe, house of David, all that kind of stuff. So there's a clear, uh, not my kid going on, right? And well, I mean, he's going to be king of the world. I got to have my own heritage. This is part of Israel life. You're always going to pass on your name. I'm not demeaning Joseph here at all. But I'm going to say that let's just imagine that for James and for, for Joseph Jr. and for Jude, growing up with mom's weird favorite, dad's, he loves him. It might not have all been, man, Jesus is, oh, he's the prophet? Yay. Christ? Let's go, guys. It, it was a little the other way around, where they're really, they can't wait for Jesus to leave. And when he comes back to town and people say, who is this guy? They don't stand up and defend him. They're used as the reason to not believe in him. It really says something about where they were. And we know for James this is true because he's converted after the resurrection by an appearance. He was an antagonist converts. Now, that happens after Jesus is baptized around 29 AD, and then he will be crucified, uh, best guess, 33 AD, at the fourth Passover recorded in scripture, and Steinman is the scholar, if you want to know where that all came from, online or what have you. But then, Pentecost happens around 34, and that's kind of the number let's stick with, okay? So the church is starting to, to get moving around 34 AD, and in that year, you see the apostle Peter and the apostle John, after the ascension of Jesus, he's gone, but Christians are gathering. Church, kind of like this is happening. Peter and John are doing it locally, and it's only for the Jews. There's Jewish Christians primarily in this mix. Peter and John are the leaders, and we know this because after prayer and worship at the temple, at a place called the Beautiful Gate, Peter heals somebody and then is arrested for it with John. They're questioned, they're left in prison overnight, and they're released. No persecution arises, but they're told to stop being Christians, and it's kind of left there. The next chapter, that was Acts 3 and 4, the next chapter moves on very quickly. But chapter 6 then, which is in this time they, they appoint seven deacons, and then one of them dies. That's Acts 6. That's two years later. So what I want you to get from this right here is that it starts in 34. The text moves with story after story after story, but you got gaps of two, three, five years between these stories. All right? Just to stick with me on that, Peter and John are the early leaders in Jerusalem. That's what we know. But then after Stephen is killed, after he's stoned to death, by, well, a mob led by a guy named Saul, remember him, uh, going to be Paul. Uh, at the same time, also, I should point out, in the same year, that's the last year of Pontius Pilate's time. Pilate ends badly. Pilate gets pulled back to Rome and then exiled for the rest of his life. And the events that are going on with Christianity and the Jews rioting are part of it. So this is the last year of, of Pilate being there, again, 36 AD, Stephen is killed. Persecution erupts under Saul. Not just Stephen now. Everybody is going to be in trouble. And Paul goes after them. 
This goes on until Acts chapter 9, but it's all the same year. It's all in 36 AD, during which time you see various people also fleeing. So Christians in Jerusalem, and this is more historical information from Josephus, it tells us that during this persecution, the church in, in Jerusalem, however many Christians were still meeting together in Jerusalem, stopped being very large. They all left. And they started living in Judea and in Samaria because, again, they're mostly Jews. They're not going to leave Israel. They're just done being at the temple waiting for the kingdom to start there because they're getting killed by the people who run the temple or being, yeah, well, that's what happened. Stephen is someone getting killed by the people who run the temple. So the Christians leave. And what we're going to see happen after this is the apostles start to leave too, but each in their order. Before that happens, Saul converts. It doesn't mean the persecution starts, but Saul goes off to Damascus to stop this thing before it gets very far. Everybody's fleeing. Better go chase him. Let's go to the next city. And that's where he has his conversion happen. Now, we know before he ends up getting to meet Peter or James or John, he first goes to Damascus, has to escape, goes to Arabia, comes back, goes to Antioch, then comes down to Jerusalem, then goes back to Antioch. All this before that Acts 15 text. And all this before anybody trusts him. None of the Jews trust him. Can you blame him? I can think of someone I don't trust. If they came in telling me they were wrong and they repent, I don't know. How easy? Especially if they killed my friend. Like literally, right? So Paul's doing that from about 36 AD to 38 AD, at least. In 39 is when Peter then has a vision that he's supposed to go up to Joppa, Caesarea, the Gentiles, where there's going to be people who are converted who he's supposed to preach to. Since he didn't do it on his own, the Spirit's just going to make it happen in one of those New Testament miracle ways. That's recorded in the book of Acts, as well as his report to Jerusalem at the council. But it's very clear that, both in the book of Acts and in the history of the church, his influence from this moment on in Jerusalem goes down. He ceases to be a leader in the church. Why do we know this? Because by chapter 12, yes, which is 42 AD, three years later, Peter's not getting killed, but James, son of Zebedee, is. He's being thrown from the temple as a punishment for being a Christian and an apostle. So it would seem that he had taken the leadership role in the church. John, his brother, kind of probably is right there with him. John ends up in Ephesus eventually. Uh, he's the only one not martyred during this time. But you can imagine then, at a certain point, if they were rounding up all the pastors, all the faithful pastors in town, at a certain point, wouldn't you tell me to go away for a couple days? I mean, I might not, but I would hope you'd try to make me, right? And, and that's kind of what's going on. The apostles get out of Dodge. And in that time then, with the persecution taking place, people being scattered to have to go to church at synagogues, just with other groups of Christians and the Pharisees together in the same place, James, catching the leadership of the early church, writes his letter. So I'm going to say his letter is sometime around 39 AD as well. After that, when Peter goes to Joppa and before 42 AD, oh, sorry, I just got ahead of myself or twisted. It's after 42 AD when James the Apostle dies and before 49 AD, that council at Jerusalem, Acts 15. And that's that big gap. You have seven years from the martyrdom of James of Zebedee to the Jerusalem council where James, brother of Jesus, ends up being the speaker. Right? And that's the time he writes this letter to Christians, Jewish Christians. Now, why is that so important? 
every sermon I've ever heard about James, and I think probably every sermon I've ever given, now including this one, has to do with some silly caveat about Luther calling James the epistle of straw. Now it's, it, it teaches justification by works, and so we have to undo that, because in chapter 2 it does have the phrase justification by works. We spent all sorts of time trying to get Paul and James to talk like each other. That is to be completely ignorant of how humans are. James, in a time of persecution, without any other New Testament scripture, no dogma, no terminology that's already been established that all of them are using together all around throughout the world, no multiple churches that have been taught in the same way, he writes a letter of concern based on Jesus' words and Old Testament wisdom and the truth that we're in Christ now. And to use that to undo Paul is nonsense to begin with. It's folly. Rather, we should see James as like a proto-dogmatics. He still talks like an Old Testament Jew, and he wants to tell you you don't have to be an Old Testament Jew to be a Christian. You can be. You can be a, a Jew and a Christian, but you don't have to be. And in that, then, you'll be able to see in his heart, again, what I would say is that repentant spirit that I can only imagine through the story we told about him earlier. Can you imagine being the brother of a guy who actually is the king, He's been born in obscurity, but he's just the king, just of our country, king of the USA, whatever. He's born in obscurity. You're his actual brother. You don't believe it, though, but he's anointed by some prophet. You don't believe it. In fact, you get in his way. And then one day, you know, Secret Service pulls up. He's Harry Potter, king of the universe. Here we go, right? How do you feel if you were a real jerk the whole time? You hated that guy. And then he shows up. He says, hey, you're coming with me. I know. I knew the whole time I knew. I got it. I get it. That's why I came. The way you talk the rest of your life is going to be different. Right? And, and I think you can hear that again from James. Now, I'm not going to be able to give you all of it, the whole book. Um, what I can say is, if you really want to douse yourself with some, some power this week, try reading one chapter of James a day, five days of the week. doesn't matter when, spread it out, just do one chapter. And if you got a New King James, I recommend picking up the New King James to try it. And remember that this is not a book trying to tell you about how you got to be a better person now. This is a book telling you that the persecution can't stop Jesus from making you a better person. That the suffering and the lies cannot deceive more than he can tell the truth. And that his plan is to tell the truth to you until it changes everything that you are. Which brings me to something I've said to you multiple times in, uh, in the last couple of weeks. That anxiety, hmm, I want to see where I wrote it down even though I have it in my head, wasting my time on a note. Anxiety is the result of an undisciplined conscience. There's a point at which the story you're listening to in your head, in your conscience, in your inner life, is a lie, and you're not disciplined enough to tell it it's a lie. Anxiety is the result of the lie that you're in charge. It's really hard to be anxious about something you have no control over. I mean, you could, you could do it, but if you really believe you can't do anything about it, you, you won't, in fact. So the fear is the result of thinking you can change it. And now, James is going to give us something to answer this today. 
And that is that prayer is not a matter of believing you need to believe what you already know harder. That's how we normally think of doubt, is it not? Let's see if I can do this right. To doubt is to believe the right thing, but not quite enough. Right? That's how we use doubt in English. Now, the Bible can talk that way. James isn't talking that way at all. James is more like doubt is believing the wrong thing too much. If you can see the difference, I'm going to say it again because it's super important. It's not believing the right thing too little. It's believing the wrong thing too much. And the reason you believe the wrong thing too much is because you're listening to it. And you shouldn't. As soon as you know it's a lie, turn off that spigot. One way or the other, shut it down. And if you can't talk back to it in your own head, well, then you got to practice that. I'm not ashamed to say it. I look in the mirror and I remind myself I'm a Christian because I'm not strong enough to remember until I look myself in the eye and tell myself. And thank God I will. Because otherwise I'd be lost in my own head, which is just a, it's just a, a morass. It's an abyss. Wisdom, we learn today from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 22 and 33. Wisdom is a person who says, if you listen to me, you will be safe. And if you ignore me, it will be your own undoing. That's your God. And that's the God who says in James, what I said this morning to open our day together. If anyone has fallen behind in wisdom, ask the giving God of integrity rather than scoffing and you will be given it. Now, why do I say scoffing? So look at verse five now with me, if you would, in our text. Now, the, the King James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, the ESV is going to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Same idea, some different color, okay? But the point, again, is that if you ask for wisdom, are you going to get it? Yes. You will get it, but, next verse, verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. And here's what I said before is going to come back. It's not about needing to ask hard enough. It's about not believing in a God who doesn't answer. And to do that, you have to believe in a God who will answer the way he wants to answer, which is where the word here is so much better than doubting in the Greek. Uh, I wrote it down. I'm still not very good at saying it. It's one didzontos, or ta'o. The idea is more literally to scoff or to mock. So you kind of got to think, how would you consider these words? Lord, have mercy. Is it a prayer? Technically, yeah, it was. Did you believe a word of it? No, you're a cynic. That's the without doubting he's talking about. Don't ask a God who you don't believe exists to give you stuff. Ask the God you believe exists, and then he'll give you what you need, and he'll tell you it's good for you. And that's really what the wisdom that he's going to push here. The real wisdom, if you want to not scoff at God when you ask for a prayer, then you must end with thy will be done, knowing that the next thing he gives you, whatever it is, is in fact a good thing for you. 
And he means it to be good for you. And if you're going to say, no, I can't see how this will be good. Well, then, of course, you've closed your mind to the gift. Now, I can't say this is easy to do in the worst of situations. And I cannot say it's easy to do if you've never practiced it. But I can say you can practice it. And I, I was given this story this morning to my great chagrin. But I, I, I get to tell it to you anyway. You may or may not know I've been attempting to carry a crucifix with me when I leave my house. It's a, it's a discipline in uh, embarrassment, really. What I want to do is make myself uncomfortable in social situations, especially realizing what's making me uncomfortable is my faith in Jesus. And someone may be asking me a question or pointing at the fact that I believe in Jesus. And to know that I'm actually that afraid and to fight back, I'm trying to carry a crucifix with me. I'm not doing real great at going into stores with it yet, but it gets in the car. Um, I do wear the one on my on my neck, thank God. Um, in any case, so I've been carrying with me to this service a durable crucifix that was given to me by a missionary James May from Africa, carved by an African man. It has a black Jesus on it, uh, which is an interesting thing to think about in another context, but um, it's a sturdy crucifix. So it's usually the one I take with me, but I've, I've noticed that I've been kind of setting it here or here, and I wanted to try to make me see it more during the service. And so I decided to bring my other favorite crucifix, which was a gift given to me by Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville when I left. I was there for three and a half years. I was their youth and family pastor. I coached boys basketball for two years into the Illinois State Tournament. I taught in the classrooms, three different classes a day, every three days. It was amazing, and yet it was also filled with a lot of pain, a lot of fear. There were some real struggles internally, which came out after I had left, and you can it doesn't matter at all. I was given this crucifix by my senior pastor, Tim Rouse. he's been and preached here before. Um, and as I left, and I have always adored it, it is one of the most beautiful pieces of art I have ever received from anybody. And I brought it today and I set it over here. And in the first service, as I was reading from the King James, like I did for you before, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trouble. Trials on the word trials. I knocked it off of this pulpit. It hit the ground and both arms came off Jesus. Now, what do you do when you're actually reading the text that tells you that was for your good, Jonathan? You're the pastor. Keep going. I had to fight back with my own mind and believe it. He'll look better with glue on arms anyway. I won't be afraid of breaking him. It's a good image. That art, that piece, that crucifix is made for soft times. The other one I've been carrying before is made for hard times. When do we live? We're in hard times, right? So there's all sorts of lessons I can draw from this for me. Now, that's how I would do it in my world today. I did it, right? Kind of. Now I'm sharing it with you. The point is that if you can actually tell yourself that the truth, according to the word of God, is that it's for your good, even though it doesn't feel like it, that feels better than it felt before. Boom. Christianity works. <laughs> and if you can discipline yourself to not let the TV and the news and the media give you a million other messages, and you can just make this the message you bring to your day every day throughout the day, it will like literally change your mind. Right now, your mind is changed every time you let someone pump a message into it. Whether you like it or not, you're on defense. It's attacking, it's attacking, it's telling you how to think, it's telling you how to talk. You have the power to change your mind with the Holy Scriptures. Uh, we're starting a men's group here 
we should be shooting some guns, I think, the afternoon of the 23rd. Every third Thursday of the month, we're going to try – I'm sorry, Thursday. Every third weekend of the month, and we'll, depending on weather and all this, Friday, Saturday, we're going to try to get together to practice firearm safety, and I'm going to talk wisdom as much as I can throughout that entire time, meaning the book of Proverbs. The reason is because I believe where we stand as a congregation right now at this point in history, needing to think about our facilities, needing to think about our governance, more important than any of that, we need our men to buy into each other as brothers. And we need a space where they can be men together. So as we move forward and do that, we're also going to be encouraging each other. Now, in our group here at St. Paul, this may not be the case, but this is part of a national movement that we're getting on board with. And one of the things that is being done by those who want to call themselves sons of Solomon, those who want to live differently than the present age, is that there are nine psalms that they are praying throughout the day. Three in the morning, two at lunch, two before dinner, and that one's optional if it's too hard, and then you have an evening set together. Um, I'll try to get those into a newsletter in the next couple of weeks if you want to pick those up. But the idea is you pray those every single day for an entire year with all your brothers in the faith across the nation. That instead of running through the scriptures, picking up pieces left and right every week, at least in your own inner life, you learn to dwell on a few of the most powerful words that are there, really. These Psalms of Ascent are quite phenomenal. Ladies, by the way, there's a version for you as well to really target your prayers for men, because men need you more than ever now to realize you're not a man and pray that the men be men. Now, I can say more about that as we go on. I think that topic will bring itself up in the future. Uh, let's return it to James here and uh, uh, see if I can, I can pull this all together now and at least a concluding thought about his, his opening thrust at us, right? So he wants you to know, verse 3, wherever you go, whatever trial you face, whatever tribulation is in your way, even if it's your own sin, which he will talk about temptation later, you know that that testing, that trying, that struggle is a promise from God to create faith in you in the experience of patience. Or, I like this word much better, fortitude. Stalworthiness. You can't get knocked over. I'll tell you another story since this is a late service. I love this story. Before I accepted the call to come to you, the chaplain for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, a wise man named, named Will Whedon, had a few conversations with me while I was working at the IC. I will say that, in general, the tenor at the IC was that I should not take this call because it was a sign of my weakness. I had had too many calls and couldn't handle anything for too long. That was the talk at the cooler. Uh, in any case, I, I knew that without anyone telling me that. I knew well enough I'd moved around too much. I wasn't happy about it. Um, and I, I wrestled long and hard with whether I should take this call, but I was pretty convinced I needed to be back in the pulpit. If I wasn't in a pulpit every week, I wasn't doing my job, frankly. Um, and so I, I talked to various people I trusted, and Whedon was one of those. And he told me a story from his youth group upbringing, which was the last thing I expected him to do. It's a great story about a youth leader, a lady, 
um, who had him as a 16-year-old, I suppose, 17-year-old in youth group. And I imagine my youth group in California, it was a square room with couches all around it, right? We all sat there. And you kind of hoped you could sit on the couch next to the girls. That was really not the best thing you could do with young people at that age. But in any case, he's in a place like that, and she's doing an object lesson with all the kids around. And she has him stand up. And she says, are you standing there? And he says, yes. And she pushed him in the chest and he fell backwards into the couch. I can't imagine my youth leader doing this. He was a little lady, but whatever. Uh, um, but uh, she said, get up, stand up again. He stood up. She said, are you standing there? And he put his feet down and said, yes. And she pushed him and he stayed there. Fortitude, patience. You do have to decide you want it. It's not magic. It's a gift, though, and a promise. And it starts with the promise that it's yours every time you suffer. God did it for you to make your world better. You may never know more than just that. Your world's better because you know he made it better. And that's enough. Let that patience have its completing work. That word there, perfect in the Greek, is telos. To telestai, the completion, the, the fullness of it is finished for Jesus on the cross. The, the pure ten of all things being what they are, our word perfect is way too moral. This is more about finishing. Let fortitude, patience, have its finishing work upon you. God has made you a Christian. Now he's going to make you suffer so that you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That is, you'll have trust in him in all things. So if you lack this wisdom, and again, the language here is about falling behind in a race. The Greek has, Greek has the, the feeling of you're running for it, but others are ahead of you. If you feel that way, ask God who made heaven and earth, right? And he gives to all liberally. He wants you to be wise. You're going to get it. And that does call to mind. I mentioned, I won't go too deep on this, but James seems to be writing based on Jesus' words in Matthew, but not from Matthew. Matthew's codified it more. It's more official and it gets repeated more. James doesn't get repeated as much, but what you can hear him doing is repeating ideas Jesus repeated as if he doesn't have a dogmatics for it yet. And so what he's saying here is, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. Believe that. Because if you believe something different, that God's not going to add to you what you need most to have the glorious life of believing, right? living in faith. Now, if you don't believe he's going to give that to you, then you are this one who is like a wave driven by the sea, tossed by the wind. You mock God when you pray effectively. Don't let that man suppose he'll get anything from the Lord where it says he is double-minded. The word there is bisuke. You can hear bicycle too, right? Uh, so there's the double. But the suke? That's the word that's always translated as soul. Let the one who scoffs at God know he has a split soul. And know that you don't anymore in this sense. That the spirit of God works upon you and is within you. That these words are yours. And you're free to believe them is true. It won't get you out of death. It won't keep you from getting sick. It might get you killed and hated actually. But you'll see. You'll see the world for what it is. You'll say hallelujah all the way. One, one little step, one little bit of suffering as we go. Some of the wisdom to begin this journey, to bring this to a close with verses 9 and following, is recognizing the passing nature of this age. 
James riffs on Isaiah chapter 40 here, I believe. All men are like grass, all their beauty like the glory of the field. The grass withers, the, 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 the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Well, James is taking that language of Isaiah and he's repeating it here now. And he's hunkering in on this idea of riches and poverty. And by the end of the book, it's really clear. Again, riches is about being secure in this life. Now, if you are a Christian with a billion dollars, and you're a Christian, then you know you're not secure in this life. That's the difference. You could be a very poor man, just have a small amount of money to live in entirely in debt, and be rich in the sense of you think you're secure in this life. And so you should know, I mean, if you think you're secure in this life, watch out. That's not how this life works. But if you know that you're poor, let the lowly brother, let the Christian who knows all of it could be taken and all of it's given, thank God, glory in that freedom. It's a freedom of conscience. You can fight back against the anxiety with it. I've not gotten rid of anxiety. Don't, don't follow me because you think I mastered this. I will remain simultaneously a saint and a sinner until the day that I die, which means I'll always be maturing. And at the same time, I'll always be finding more problems inside me. But Christianity doesn't say, therefore, sit there. It says, that's the game. That's the game. He has risen. You're paid for. You're immortal now. He's not going to be long before he changes it all. The water has sealed you in this. And now this meal is going to feed it. And that's Catholic Christianity. If you don't say that, you're not a Christian. And I say, if we're going to start building here on this corner, that's a great place to start. Yes, let's eat to it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.